Welcome to the Faith Dialogue Podcast with your host, Pastor Ken Baer. Are you ready to swim in the deep end of the Bible pool or climb to the top of Faith Mountain? If so, open the eyes that see, those ears that hear, and a heart that is receptive. Get your cup of coffee and your Bible as we begin. To our Wednesday message. We're in a, a new series uh, called Pondering Prophecy. A- at Faith Dialogue, we have, we have two messages er- every week. We have our, our Sunday service, and we're presently going through a series called Unstoppable, and it's on the book of the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, we're going through that book uh, verse by verse, word for word. That's how we, that's our preferred method of doing Bible study. And then on Wednesdays, we have, have just finished a, a two-year overview of the parables of, of Jesus. And we decided to go ahead, and especially during this time with, with so many voices out there, talking about uh, prophecy, about the end of days, we thought we would, we would start this series called Pondering Prophecy and be able to have a real clarion voice when it comes to what prophecy is and what to expect uh, in the, probably the not too distant future. Uh, last week, I mentioned that there were, were three principles that, that I use that will guide us through our study of, of prophecy. These are, these are bedrock principles. Uh, we may not always mention them every time like we are today, uh, but we will always maintain them. And so let me just summarize them for you pretty quickly. Uh, the first one uh, is, is easily understood. It's in these three words, thy kingdom come. And if that sounds familiar to it, it's because it's in the Lord's Prayer. Or some of you that have a Catholic background, it's the, the Our Father. Every time we say the Our Father, we say, Thy kingdom come, uh, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, every time we pray, Jesus has us pray that way, Thy kingdom come, which is a, a look to the second coming of Jesus Christ, of, of the fulfillment of what we call the eschaton. Uh, and number two, our second bedrock principle is that prophecy is, is profitable. The Bible tells us that all scripture, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instructions in righteousness. Uh, we need to be reading prophecy in order to be complete and in order to be, to be ready. As prophecy constitutes between 25 and 33% of the Bible, or one out of every three or four verses, if we ignore prophecy, or if we uh, avoid it, uh, we miss so much. It's, it's like literally taking 10 to 12 books out of, the, out of the Bible. And the third bedrock principle is this. The second coming of Jesus is called by the Apostle Paul, the blessed hope. It's something we are to look forward to. It's not something to be wary of. It's something that we need to be ready for, but it's called the, the blessed hope. Um, we'll talk today a little bit more about this blessed hope or this glorious appearing. Uh, again, it's something that we embrace. It's something that we do not need to fear. So as we study prophecy, uh, not only today, uh, but in the future Wednesday sessions, we'll always remember these, these three bedrock principles. Uh, today, I, I'd like to spend some time, and our topic for today is the tribulation. 
with the question mark. Is it coming? Is the tribulation coming? And, and what is it? Um, today we're going to talk about the tribulation or what people call sometimes the great tribu tribulation. This is the seven year period that just precedes the coming, the glorious, uh, glorious appearing uh, of Jesus Christ. Now, as I was preparing this message, it was interesting. I was talking to Pastor Greg at, at Celebration Community Church. And one of the things that he's doing is he's presently teaching through the book of Revelation, another book of prophecy. And, and he, he said something that I took note of. And I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to repeat that. It's a, it's a great word. And what it is is this, is that as we look at prophecy, as we go through the book of Daniel or Isaiah or the book of Revelation, we don't want to interpret prophecy based on the current events, what we read in the newspaper or we see on the news. We always want to interpret prophecy based on what the Bible has to say. That's a good word. The Bible interprets the Bible. And we talk about the, when we talk about the prophecies in the Bible that point to the second coming of Christ, the establishment of the millennial reign of Christ, we will be looking at the Old Testament. A person that really wants to understand last days, or the, the theological word for that is eschatology, which is a Latin word that means the study of the last things, we would be wise we would all be wise to study the Old Testament prophets and carefully do some research before we jump to any conclusions. And you know, and that includes if I'm telling you something and you've never heard that before, I, I'd rather you not just take my word for it, I'd rather you get your Bible out and research what we say so that you can come to the right conclusion. Not necessarily my conclusion, but the right conclusion. So today, as we begin to explore what is re referred to as the tribulation, let me first define the term as it's typically described. And then we'll be looking at the Old Testament prophet Daniel, often thought of in connection with his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So before we get into the text and dig into some of the scripture of the Bible, um, let, me, let me tell you a, a story, and you'll see how this relates as well. You know, I've had the privilege of, of serving as a, as a pastor in a, in a number of churches in pastoral ministry for almost 20 years. This is my second career. So during those 20 years, at the beginning of those 20 years, I, I went back to school. And I selected a conservative, biblically-centered seminary that I could do my studies. And now I have the opportunity to not only preach the gospel, but to be able to share uh, with, with friends, with people like you. As a pastor, one of the questions that comes up from time to time is, do you take the Bible literally? Do you take what the Bible says, do you take it literally? And now, I don't particularly like the question. It deserves an answer, don't get me wrong. It deserves an answer. But the reason I don't like it is because it's not one of those questions that you can give a simple yes or no to. You know, it's like somebody in a court, just answer the question, yes or no. That kind of question, you can't just answer yes or no, because there's, there's, it, there's so much involved when you talk about the interpretation of, of Scripture. Uh, what I let them know is that I take the Bible literally as the inspired Word of God. The Bible tells us that all Scripture is God-breathed. 
and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. That's uh, 2 Timothy verses, chapter 3, verse 16. So yes, we read the, so when we read the prophet Isaiah, and the prophet Isaiah says that, behold, a virgin will conceive and, and bear a son, and he is to be called Emmanuel, which is God with us. We take that literally. We understand that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and Mary, a virgin, gave birth to a son. When we read Micah, and we read that the Messiah that is to be born is to be born in Bethlehem, don't you know that when the wise men came to Jerusalem and they asked Herod, where is the king of the Jews to be born? Now, Herod didn't know, but the religious leaders did. They were able to go to Micah and say, the, the Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem. And then they quoted the scripture. You see, they believed that that was to be taken literally. However, we do see often metaphors and symbolism in the Bible. You know, Jesus says he's the good shepherd. Well, that's a, that's a metaphor. Jesus says he's the door, and, and that's, that's symbolic. The mistake that many people make, and this is why I'm focusing on this, the mistake that many people make is reading something in the Bible, a prophecy that's controversial or spectacular. And then they determine that because these things um, are either spectacular um, or controversial, or maybe they just don't want to believe what is actually written there, they decide that they're going to take the scriptures allegorically. They're going to take it symbolically. They're not going to take it literally. So, for example, when the Bible says that Jesus took a few loaves of, uh, loaves of bread and a few fish and fed 3,000 in one passage and then did it and fed 5,000 in another, um, they feel that that's, that's too spectacular. They don't take it literally, as if the creator of the universe wasn't able to stretch a meal. Unfortunately, prophecy, and that's what we're focusing on these Wednesdays, prophecy is that which is often controversial and spectacular. Because it is often controversial and spectacular, many have decided that it's, it's too difficult to understand. And as a result, they say, this is just a bunch of symbolism. I'll never be able to understand it. And what do they do? They, they forget about it. Rarely do they preach it. Rarely do they read it. And rarely do they, they teach it. However, over 25% of the Bible is, is prophecy. And to date, all of the Old Testament prophecies that have been fulfilled have been fulfilled literally, including the ones I had mentioned just earlier. You know, sometimes we'll read a passage that's clearly symbolic. Um, it'll use certain words that it will give you a clue that it's symbolic. The words like, it'll include the words that say, and then I saw something like, they'll use that word like. It was like a leopard, it was like a bear. It was like a dragon. Now this is an indication that the prophecy is using symbolic language. The prophecy will be fulfilled literally, but the language that's being used is, is symbolic. You know, for centuries, the greatest theologians of the church found it almost impossible to believe what the Bible said, that in the end times, God would again regather the people of Israel that had been scattered to Europe and Asia and Africa and then later to North and South America. And God would turn his attention back to the people of Israel 
and gather them together in the land of Israel, the land that was promised to Abraham and um, uh, Jerusalem, the, the city of David. But that is exactly what Isaiah said would happen. In Isaiah chapter 66, verse, verse 8, it says, Who has ever heard such things? Who has ever seen like this? Can a country be born in a day? Or a nation bring, be, be brought forth in a moment? Yet no sooner is Zion in labor than she gives birth to her children. Now, we have history. We have contemporary history. And that's exactly what happened on May 14, 1948. The nation of Israel is born. 1900 years after the Roman armies had completely destroyed the temple and all of Jerusalem and basically scattered the Jewish, Jewish people into what is not what was known as the Great Diaspora. It was this event that should have convinced many previous skeptics that perhaps all of the prophecies regarding Israel that were yet unfilled, unfulfilled would be fulfilled exactly as they're described. Uh, we were, today we're going to take a look at the, the book of, of Daniel and we're going to see that, that all of these prophecies that Daniel had made earlier were fulfilled literally. We can assume then that the prophecies that Daniel has made about the second coming of Jesus Christ would be fulfilled or will be fulfilled exactly as they're described. You know, one of the keys to understanding apocalyptic literature it is embracing the obvious focus of the prophecies and the obvious focus of most of these prophecies when it comes to the end of days especially with regard to the topic for today which is the tribulation is the people of Israel and the land of Israel the book of Revelation is often called the book of the apocalypse and the scripture um, um, the, the, the scripture as it's apocalyptic would be actually described as an unveiling or an unfolding of things that were previously unknown. That's what prophecy, apocalyptic language in a prophecy does. It, it reveals something that was previously unknown. Now, listen to me when I tell you that Israel is the key. And without this key, you'll not be able to understand much of what's written in, in prophecy. When we read the scriptures in the book of Revelation of Daniel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Joel, we often see the prophecies speak of things like this, my people Israel, or the law, or Jerusalem, or the temple, the city, the sanctuary. All of these are direct references to the people and the land of Israel. Now while the judgments of God that we read about, for example, in the, in the book of Revelation, will definitely impact the entire earth and all of the people that are living at that time on the earth. We should not substitute the nations of the West or the church when we read of Israel or Jerusalem. This is the key to understanding the true meaning of these prophecies. So remember these two keys as we go forward. Uh, as we begin to look at these scriptures and we'll see that these two keys and remember what they are first is that number one we take the 
the, the scriptures literally, whenever possible. We take them literally. And even when they're controversial or spectacular, if there's a clear, clear literal reading of the scriptures, that's how we take it. The second key to understanding is that the focus of the tribulation is Israel. Not all of the judgments are upon Israel, but again, the, these are called the seven years of Jacob's trial. Jacob trial. Jacob was, was Israel. And this, this is the final week for Israel. Uh, and this is the final seven years that Israel will experience prior to Jesus coming in the air uh, with the saints. It's in this way when we read about the temple, Jerusalem, or the nations of the Middle East, we should not be tempted to think that these are, these are metaphors, metaphors for, for something else. So let's have a quick summary rule. Let's do a real quick summary of what we typically understand to be the literal, biblical understanding of the tribulation. And we start off with, with actually in Matthew, not the book of Revelation or the book of Daniel, but Matthew. Because in Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus answering, is answering the questions put to him by his disciples about the signs of the time and the end and his second coming. In one passage, Jesus references the tribulation. And he says, for at that time, there will be great tribulation, unmatched from the beginning of the world until now and never to be seen again. That's um, book of Matthew chapter 24 verse 21. Uh, as this word tribulation is actually the same word as trial, Jesus intentionally uses a modifier. He calls it the great tribulation. In fact, the very next verses, Jesus continues and says, and unless those days, the tribulation, were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. So while the, this word tribulation is the more popular term, it's called, but there's a number of different names for this, this period of the end, this final seven years. Um, this this seven-year period of tribulation begins with a peace treaty, a peace treaty that's confirmed among many. That's the word that the scripture says. The peace treaty will be confirmed among many. That provides peace and safety. There's those words, peace and safety to the nation of Israel. The Bible says that this peace treaty will be for seven years. However, halfway through the peace treaty, the seven-year period, or after three and a half years, um, it's broken. So as a result, we have two periods of tribulation, the first three and a half years and the second three and a half years. And for experts in Bible prophecy, there are certain events and certain things that go on during those periods of time. But they are very specific. And again, the Bible uses language that tells you it's being very specific. For example, in Revelation chapter 11, verses 2 and 3, it says, And they will trample on the holy city for 42 months. And I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy, prophesy for 1,260 days. Well, 1,260 days divided by 30, an average time of, of the month, an average month, is actually 42 months. 1260 divided by 42 by 30 is 42, which is three and one half years. The tribulation begins with the signing of this peace treaty and the revealing of the individual that we refer to as the Antichrist. The Apostle John, who is on the island of Patmos, 
is given this prophecy, this, this prophecy of Revelation. The book of Revelation, by the way, is one prophecy from the very beginning to the end. It's, it's one prophecy. Un, uh, unlike the book of Daniel or Isaiah or Jeremiah or any of the other prophets, the book of, of Revelation is actually one complete prophecy. The tribulation is the last days before the physical return of Jesus to the earth during and at the end of the climactic battle of Armageddon. The tribulation actually gets underway in chapter 6 of Revelation with the opening of seven seals. The seven seals are the beginning of a series of sevens. Seven seals, seven trumpets, finally seven vials. These initial four seals are known as the Four horsemen of the apocalypse. You've probably heard that. And it features four horsemen on different colored horses. White, fiery red, black, and pale green. And then they, these four horsemen represent conquest, war, famine, and death. The first horseman, by the way, happens to be none other than the, the Antichrist. During these three series of judgments, there are many, in, many events and many individuals, and I'll touch on just some of them. For example, there are 144,000, 12,000 from each one of the 12 tribes of Israel. These 144,000 have a, a very important task. We don't know all of the details, but they're sent on a mission from God. Many believe that these 144,000 are evangelists. They're preachers. Uh, they're an important part of a huge revival that occurs during the seven years of tribulation. And many, many people will, will come to salvation. However, the, the tribulation period is, is, is violent, and it's a dreadful time. And actually, most of the people that come to salvation, come to believe in Jesus Christ, will be martyred. They'll lose their life. And then John the Apostle actually writes about that in the book of Revelation. And he sees an altar in heaven. And under the altar are the souls of these people that were martyred during the tribulation. These martyred saints are asking God for his righteous judgment, his, his response. Now, during the tribulation, another uh, individual or two people we meet are the, what's called the two witnesses that appear on the streets of Jerusalem, uh, likely during the first half of the tribulation. And they do things. They perform miracles. They preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. They, they teach prophecy. And they condemn the Antichrist, not making them very popular with the Antichrist. These two witnesses are men. They're great and faithful prophets of the Most High God. Now, some people speculate, that we don't know who they are, but some people speculate that they may be Moses and Elijah representing the, the law and the prophets. It's, it's just speculation. The Bible says that no one can come against them for 1,260 days. Again, that's three and a half years or 42 months. But then, in the middle of the tribulation, God allows them uh, to be killed. And the world rejoices. They actually, people of the world at that time actually send presents to each other because these, these two witnesses are, are killed. The trials that come upon the earth during the tribulation, represented primarily by the seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven vials, these are said to be judgments of God on a world that has embraced evil, turned its back on God, 
and is embracing evil. The Bible says that those who were not killed by these judgments, by these plagues, uh, would still not repent of their murder, their sorcery. That word that's used for sorcery is actually pharmakia. Um, most likely not representing sorcery as much as it's repre representing pharmaceutical drugs, their sexual immorality and their thefts. So even though there's this judgment going on and people are very, uh, they understand that this is God trying to get their attention, they still refuse to repent. Now, also during the tribulation, there's three characters that form a, what's called an an unholy alliance, unholy alliance, an unholy trinity. And they include Satan himself, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. This is a time of great deception. Many people will fall for their lies and their deception. And while the Antichrist leads a one world government, the false prophet leads a one world religion. During that time, Satan gives them both power to deceive the world through signs and wonders. During or before the tribulation, the temple will rebuilt, be rebuilt. I know there's no temple there right now, but we know there's going to be a temple because the temple is referenced in the book of Revelation. Halfway through the tribulation, the Antichrist is said to defile the temple, actually declaring himself to be a god and worthy of worship. We're also told that the Antichrist requires that everyone takes a mark. You've heard of the mark of the beast. This is where it comes from. The Antichrist will cover, require everyone to take a mark that identifies them as a fowler of the Antichrist. And without the mark, no one can, can buy or sell. You know, it's always been troubling to try to figure out what that meant, what that understands. But let me tell you, I've got a mask in my pocket. And if I go over to Publix, I can't buy or sell anything unless I'm wearing the mask. So. We see a, a type coming here of exactly how the Antichrist has the ability to control the economies of the world. According, occasionally in the book of Revelation, we are transported into heaven and we see events going on in heaven as well. One of the events that goes on is, is called the marriage supper or the feast of the Lamb. Um, this is recorded in chapter 9 of the book of Revelation after the church has been taken to heaven before the return uh, to Christ on his glorious appearing. And we know we're told that the, the church is the bride of Christ. So this is in essence kind of a, a wedding ceremony between the bride of Christ and the bridegroom, which is none other than Jesus Christ. And this happens in heaven during the tribulation. One of the final events... Um, of the tribulation is what's known as the Battle of Armageddon. And, and it's actually a, a series of battles where the kings of the earth and the Antichrist get together and they actually, get this, they actually war against Israel and God. They war against God. And this involves literally millions of soldiers, millions of soldiers that decide that they're going to try to defeat the Messiah, Jesus Christ himself. The tribulation, of course, ends with this second coming of Jesus Christ. The scriptures tells us that the armies of heaven follow him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Many Bible scholars understand that these individuals riding on white horses and dressed in white linen are the saints of God that return with Jesus to be on the earth 
for the next 1,000 years, which is what's called the millennial reign of Christ. In the time that is remaining, let me introduce you uh, briefly to this secondary source of much of these prophecies, and that secondary source is the prophet Daniel. The prophet Daniel was a very young and a very bright um, uh, Jew living in Jerusalem when Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon, came and sacked all of Jerusalem and took many of them captive. Daniel, as well as some others, were selected to be brought to Babylon. These, these were to be, and I'm quoting, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve the king, which is Nebuchadnezzar. Now, along with Daniel, there are three others, and you know their names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, those are the names that the Babylonians gave them. Those weren't the actual Jewish names they had. In fact, Daniel is given the name uh, in Babylon of Belteshazzar, Belteshazzar. Daniel quickly proves himself to be of great service to Nebuchadnezzar. In chapter 2 of the book of Daniel, we read of... Uh, of a dream that Nebuchadnezzar had and he calls all of the wise men together and they, he wants them to interpret the dream. But there's a catch. He's not going to tell them what the dream is and if they're unable to do it, he's going to kill them all. Well, well, Daniel goes and talks to Nebuchadnezzar and he says this. He says, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Daniel then reveals the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had and the interpretation. And the interpretation is about four world um, empires beginning with Babylon. Briefly, Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar that he, he dreamt of a large statue made up of four different materials identified as the four kingdoms. There was a head of gold that Daniel said represented King Nebuchadnezzar um, and the kingdom of Babylon. The statue then had a chest and arms of silver identified as an inferior kingdom to follow like Nebuchadnezzar that the scholars identify was the combined kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. Darius the Great was a Mede and Cyrus the Great was, was, a, um, um, was a Persian. Then the statue has a belly and thighs of bronze representing the third kingdom that will rule over the earth believed to symbolize the kingdom of Greece. And then finally there are two legs of iron with feet of mingled iron and clay representing Rome. And if you remember Rome had, had two branches. It had an eastern and a western part of Rome. The eastern part had a headquarters of Constantinople and the western was headquartered in, in Rome. Daniel lives to see Darius the Mede and conquer Babylon just as the dream foretold. And Daniel was ultimately promoted after a brief encounter in the lion's den. You probably remember reading about that. Then in chapter 9, yet there's another vision of four beasts and it provides a little bit more specificity on exactly these, these same four kingdoms that, that uh, uh, eclipse the time of Daniel and that were the, the, the highlights of the vision that Nebuchadnezzar had as well as this vision of the four beasts. So Daniel is reading the writings of, of Jeremiah a contemporary prophet, and realizes that Jeremiah says that this, this um, exile that the Jews had in Babylon was going to last 70 years, and the 70 years was just about up. So Daniel begins to pray and fast, and the angel Gabriel comes to him and tells him something uh, that's amazing. 
he tells them that while 70 years was the time of the exile, there would actually be 70 weeks, 70 weeks of years, 70 times 7, um, for the, that is designated for the people of Israel and the city of Jerusalem to bring about a number of things. Let, let me read you just three or four verses, and it's going to sound a little bit different, because again, this is apocalyptic language, but we'll come back and we'll unpack some of these verses. Verse 24 says, Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sin and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring an everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Verse 25, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The streets shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the Prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary and the end thereof shall be with a flood and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. And that's Daniel chapter 9 verses 24 through 26. Now, so while this prophecy of the 70 weeks can be a little difficult at first, it starts to come together when you break it down, especially when you have a little help from a Bible teacher or a commentary, people that have, have studied this for a number of years. In verse 24, for example, Gabriel says, 77s are decreed for your people in your holy city. Almost all, all commentators agree that the 77s refers to 70 times 7, or a total of 490 years that the angel Gabriel is laying out for Daniel. The object of this prophecy is the timing, the coming of the Messiah, not actually the time of the tribulation. Verse 25 says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of a commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem until the prince, the Messiah the prince, shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. These verses, while somewhat obscure, provide the, a countdown clock until Jesus. That's what Gabriel's giving Daniel. He's giving them a, a countdown clock, kind of a, a stopwatch. The angel Gabriel said it would be seven and three score in two weeks. Well, a score is 20, so three score is 60. So after the first seven weeks, there'll be another 62 weeks. So we already said that the week represented seven years. So the prophecy, if we put these words into the prophecy rather than reading about scores and weeks, would read something like this. That from going, the going forth of a commandment to rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince, shall be 49 years followed by another 434 years. 434 is 62 times 7. So the 49 plus 434 years, that's 483 years. Now, there's two things that we need to add to make this prophecy even more spectacular. Scholars have determined that it was exactly 483 years after the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem that was given by King Artaxerxes of Persia. And that's actually recorded in the Bible. It happened in 445 B.C. That's in Nehemiah. 
to the time of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Isn't that amazing? It was exactly the time that the angel Gabriel had told Daniel, 483 years. The prophecy in Daniel 9 speci specifies that after the completion of the 483 years, it says the anointed one, who's that? That's Jesus, will be cut off. That was fulfilled when Jesus was crucified. The angel Gabriel's prophecy also specified two time periods. The first being 49 years, and that took us to the rebuilding of Jerusalem during the time of Nehemiah, which was exactly 49 years after the call to rebuild Jerusalem took place. So how does this fit in with the seven years of tribulation? Well, I'm glad you asked, because this is exactly the point. Daniel was told that there were going to be 70 sevens, or 490 years, and we've only accounted for 483. There's still another seven years that are left. Daniel was told that the 70 years were to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Now, commentators have gone through those individually, but I'm just going to summarize it. This is the completion of all things. Everything will be complete. It will be finished up. It will be ended. All done. So the 490 years um, were for the Jews. That's what Gabriel told Daniel. There's 77 for your people, for God's people. 490 years, but God's stopwatch stopped after Jesus was crucified. There's still another seven years left. And those seven years are the seven years of Jacob's trouble. Those are the seven years of the tribulation. God has one last seven-year period. And during that period, everything that is yet to be accomplished will be accomplished. It's when God turns his full attention back to the people of Israel. God turns his full attention back to the people of Israel as the bride of Christ, the church, is first taken to heaven before the tribulation. Now that's another subject, I mean that's another message in itself, so stay tuned, we'll get to that in the next few weeks. So we'll conclude this brief look at the tribulation period with the words of Jesus, as quoted in chapter 24 of Matthew, verses 29 through 31. Jesus says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the others. Let's pray. Father God, I want to thank you, Lord, for who you are. And Lord, we just went through a lot of scripture and a lot of information. You've been listening to Faith Dialogue with Pastor Ken Baer, recorded live at Celebrate Seniors, a ministry of faith dialogue. You can listen to or watch all of the recordings at Faith Dialogue by going to www.faithdialogue.org.